Welcome to the Redeemer Podcast. For more information about Redeemer Church, visit makingmuchofjesus.org. We hope you enjoyed the talk and invite you to visit us next Sunday at either our 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. service. Good morning. Please take your Bibles and go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, and we'll begin reading in verse 1 all the way through verse 18. As I think about Christmas passages and the Christmas story, there's one verse, one section of the scriptures that I can just never escape. And even at times, I think if we're honest with some parts of the Bible, we can kind of go, yeah, I know this part. I've read this one a lot. And this is one area where some of us, we could be in a lot of danger of assuming we know this one very well. In John 1, beginning in verse 1, and since this, this word comes to us in the very authority, power, majesty, and holiness of God himself. Let's stand together in the honor of reading of the word of Christ. And the Spirit says, beginning in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet, the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of men, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let's pray together. Holy Father, now, by your power and by the spirit of the risen Christ, would you help us now to See your glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And would you help us to receive now, by your Spirit, from your word, grace upon grace. And even those who are here today, Lord, who you know that do not believe in your Son, would you send your Spirit now and do a mighty work in their heart that they would believe in his name for their salvation of their souls, for the forgiveness of sins, 
and everlasting life. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There are two things, two things that this passage and that Christmas requires of you. Two things presented in this passage that are required of every single one of us at Christmas and really even beyond Christmas. There are two things that Jesus himself, that what we see about him in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the very reality of Jesus, of him becoming a man who existed before Genesis 1, becoming a man at Christmas, his death on the cross for sinners, his resurrection from the grave for sinners, his ascension to heaven for sinners, and his promised and impending return for sinners. All of this means something that we must do something. Something's required of us. Everyone in this room, we must deal with Jesus. Everyone has to deal with Jesus. I mean, think about it. We're even though a lot of people will celebrate Christmas and exchange gifts and do all kinds of other holiday things, they may not acknowledge Jesus at all. But whether they acknowledge him at all or not, what they're celebrating is still tethered all because of what happened 2,000 years ago in a little countryside in Galilee. Whether they admit it or not, acknowledge it or not, even the fact that the most rank pagan can smile at Christmas is a reverberating echo of common grace from Jerusalem. Everyone has a decision to make about Jesus. If you're familiar with the Christmas story, here's one element. If not, it's fine. Here, here's a little bit just to show you how we deal with Jesus. When the Magi in the East see this massive star, which some people think was a, was a comet that was sailing through the sky, leading them, that God was orchestrating, leading them towards Bethlehem, they follow it. And the Bible says that these wise men, these Magi, they came to Jesus and they worshipped him. They worshipped him. Herod hears about the same thing. King Herod. What does Herod do? Herod feels threatened by Jesus and wants to kill baby Jesus. So those are the two polar options we see. One group wants to worship Jesus and adore him. And Herod, the other side, he feels threatened. He feels cornered. He feels he, needs, he must go at war with Jesus. That simple narrative shows us these are the two polar options where all of us sit with King Jesus. We either worship him, we adore him, we follow him, we love him, or we're at odds with him. You either see Jesus as a glorious treasure or you feel threatened by him on some level. Is Jesus a threat to you like he was to Herod in this sense, that he messes up what you want in your life? Jesus is messing up what you're chasing. He's messing up what you're after. He, Jesus is too extreme. For Herod, little baby Jesus is too extreme for him because he knows if he really is the Messiah, he is the Lord of all and I'm in trouble. Do you think Jesus is too extreme? Is he too narrow? Jesus, is he too limiting? You see, what it really comes down to the, at Christmas and at every waking nanosecond of our lives, it, this comes down to the basic fundamental question for all of us. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Why do we still have a holiday 2,000 years after the birth of this guy that we still celebrate? No one else has this in history. 
a global celebration about one man's birth. I mean, we have holidays in the U.S., Martin Luther King, we have President's Days, all these kinds of other things, holidays to celebrate other men, but these are not global, massive, worldwide celebrations for 2,000 years now. Who is Jesus? And this is basically what we just read, what John is doing in the Gospel of John. Every Gospel writer at the beginning of their Gospels gives us a little introduction to Jesus, who he is. Matthew gives his, he gives one kind of genealogy back to Abraham. Luke gives his, a different genealogy going all the way back to Adam. Matthew has a little, uh, Mark has a little introduction. What is John's? How does John introduce us this morning to Jesus of Nazareth? Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we know he's talking about Jesus because in verse 14, he says the Word became flesh, and then he gives the name, the Word, he gives the name. Who's the name? Verse 17, Jesus Christ. Jesus, this is John's first thought he wants us to have, is the Word. He didn't say the thought. He doesn't say the action. He, he doesn't say the feeling. He says the Word. Why? Well, it, we can't tell in our English Bibles, but in Greek, which is what this is written in, it means logos, where you can hear our eventual English word for logic, the point, the outworking. So what John is doing here, right at the gate, he's communicating to us about Jesus Christ, that he is the center of the universe. He's the point of the universe. He is the center of everything. If you had never seen a guitar before, somehow, okay, Somehow, you had never seen a guitar before, and here it is right here, a little six-string acoustic guitar. Christmas was around. Somebody gives it to you. You've never seen it before. Your reaction would be, well, what is this? Well, what's, what's the point of this thing? What's the logical reason for this? What's its logical function? What does it do? What's the logos of it? What's the point? Is it art? Do you hang it on a wall? Is it a statue? Is it a tool of some sort that has these strings and a hole in the middle? Ah, oh, it's a cheese grater. That's what it is. You're figuring out, why, why did you give me this? What am I supposed to do with this? What's the point? What's the logos? John says here, here is the logos. Here is the logic of the universe. Jesus is. Jesus is the center. He's no mere teacher. He's no mere healer. He's no mere religious guru. He is the hub of everything, heaven and earth, and he's always existed. This is what he's saying in verse 1. And the beginning was the word. So before the beginning, right there, there he is. And look at what else this word is doing. The word was with God. So right next to God, the Father, there is the word. There is Jesus. And what else does he say? And the word was God. He's not a junior God. He's not a lesser sub-God. Now the word was and is God. He's always existed, which is pretty logical if you think about it. You have a point before you begin construction. You just don't start doing stuff. You have a logos before you begin creation. You have a logos before you do anything. He is God. He was with God. And look at verse 3. John makes it even more clear. All things were made through him. Jesus is not creation. 
He is the creator. He's always existed, and all things are made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So, okay, we're given this brain-busting truth right at the beginning from John about who Jesus is. This is his introduction of Jesus of Nazareth. Did you hear the conundrum here? What, who are you telling me about, John? Oh, I'm telling you about Jesus of Nazareth. Well, what about him? He has made all things, and all things were made through him. So Jesus of Nazareth goes beyond, oh, little town of Bethlehem. His history is beyond all that we hear in our little Christmas songs from time to time. Jesus is a God, the God, a son of God from Galilee and a man from heaven. This, friends, is the wild brightness of Christmas, and it collides in verse 14. Talking about the Word again, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So this Word, this Logos, the God, eternal God, Son of God, creator and sustainer of the universe in all of His godness and all of His Logosness and all of His divinity, He didn't lose a drop, bundles all of that eternality and infinity into an embryo into the Virgin Mary's womb. The God who spoke Saturn and all of its rings into existence, he bundles himself up into a cell that we could not see if we held in our hands. That takes 21st century technology to behold. And he did this. All of God, all of eternity, all of his attributes into the Virgin Mary. <laughs> this is amazing. And church people, we got to do more than just politely nod our heads at that. Yes, that's true. We got to be amazed. We got to be a marvel and see it because this is the first thing that John says about this. Look what he says. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, the eternal, the logos, the beginning with God and was God, all things created through him. He lived among us and what? We have seen his glory. Two things required of us at Christmas. Number one, you got to see his glory. See his glory. John says, we've seen it. So John says, so the eternal son of God became a man, lived among us. And what's John's take? What's his hot take on this? It was not, eh, I was kind of underwhelmed. The word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. I was left wanting. I was unimpressed. I thought he'd be taller. You know, th these are not his, his reaction is, no, we saw his glory. We could spend hours talking about the glory of Jesus Christ. It is by far my favorite thing to talk about, the glory of Jesus. And think about the word glory. It, it just means, in a way that we would speak in our culture, it means the awesomeness of Jesus it means the going public of the unstoppable majesty of Jesus Christ. The show-stopping wonder of Jesus of Nazareth. And John says, we saw it. Well, just think about Jesus' life. If you don't know him, here's a few things about that he's done. How about the time when Jesus, in John chapter 2, he turns gallons of water into the best wine Israel has ever sipped with his words. How about the time Jesus told this Samaritan woman, a, a reject of society no one would ever want to talk to, 
Jesus approaches her, tells her her entire life story, and invites her to believe in him as the Messiah. What about the time Jesus told a government, a government official who's pleading with him, my son is dying, will you come and heal my son? I, I, I've heard that you can heal. Will you come and lay hands on him and heal him? And Jesus says, no, I, I don't have time to go there, but your son's healed. With his words, he's healed. How about him feeding 20,000 people with a little boy's lunch? How about Jesus challenging the status quo, the hypocritical religious leaders of his day, telling them, the Pharisees, no, you think you worship my father, you do not. You don't worship God, you worship, you don't worship my father, you worship your father, the devil. You're a bunch of whitewashed tombs. Outwardly you look good, but inside you smell like tales of the crib. You can see it like everyone, imagine you're one of the disciples going, okay. We're going to get in a lot of trouble here. How about Jesus telling people, your sins are forgiven? That he forgives them for sins they've committed against other people. If I sin against my wife, right, which happens, I sin against Natalie, and she comes to me and says, Jeff, I forgive you of that. Thank you. That makes sense. Let's say I sin against Natalie, and then Ted walks up, and Ted says, Jeff, I forgive you for what you've done to Natalie. Excuse me? Like, Ted, you have nothing to do with this. You're, you don't have jurisdiction on this, Ted. Only God has total jurisdiction on this. This is why when Jesus told people in the Gospels, your sins are forgiven, the Pharisees went, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why does he say their sins are forgiven? Only God can forgive sins. Bingo. They're right. So what Jesus is telling them, you're right. Only God can forgive sins. His sins are forgiven. He's telling them, I am God. He says, you don't believe me? What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or hey, take up your bed. I know you can't walk, but grab it and walk out of here. Which is easier? Of course, just saying your sins are forgiven because you can't see that. Jesus, watch this. Get up, you can leave now, you're healed. He gets up, he says, so that you know the Son of Man has power to forgive sins, take up your bed and walk. And everyone goes, whoa. And it's no telling, no kidding why John says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and I saw his glory. He is no mere man that I hung out with. He is no mere teacher, no mere healer, no religious ruler, not just a really great fisherman, not a great boat captain. No, this is more than all these things. We saw his glory. The disciples saw him transform on a mountain, and Moses and Elijah have a conversation with him. They saw him say, I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise again from the dead three days later. They saw it with their own eyes. And then they saw him, they could hug him and eat with him and, and grab him. And then they saw him fly back into heaven and telling them, do not worry, I will be with you always till the end of the age. I will send you my Holy Spirit. And so what's John's reaction? Ah, oh, that's pretty cool. I saw his glory. Have you seen it? Have you seen his glory? John sees Jesus as glorious. Do you? 
this how you see him? Is he glorious to you? Is he awe-inspiring? Is he invigorating? Is he comforting? Is Jesus excite and insight wonder in you? And you might object right now. You might be feeling some objections in your heart going, you know, yes, if I saw everything that John saw, totally, I'd say I saw his glory. But I haven't seen it. You're wrong. You can see it all by faith, not by sight. You are not shortchanged for not being on the shore when Jesus walked on water. You are not at a disadvantage from seeing the glory of Jesus because you didn't have a spot on the boat when he told the storm to stop. You are not ripped off from having seen his glory because you couldn't yell into that empty tomb. By faith, you see it in the scriptures, not by sight. By faith, you can see his glory, not by sight. And specifically, there's two things that John says in verse 14 that we see about his glory, his person, and who he is, what he's like. So who is Jesus? Look at what he says, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. What kind of glory, John? What's his glory like? Glory as of the only Son from the Father, the very Son of God. We saw him as the very Son of God. The first step into seeing the glory of Jesus is to move beyond what he's taught that is important, to move beyond his miracles that is important, but to add all these things together and see he is the Son of God. He's more than what our culture says. He's more than what I thought him to be. He is the glory as of the only Son from the Father. God's glory, not a lower glory, not a sub-glory, the same co-glory as God the Father. And he became a man. He became flesh and came to us. So many religions and even Christians sometimes talk as though we have to work our way to God. You got to be good enough. You got to be smart enough. You got to go to church enough. You got to get your life all up together and then you can go to God. To believe that way is to slap Christmas across the face. Christmas is showing us that we do not work our way to God. He has done everything to come to us. Born of the Virgin Mary, suffered on the cross, rose again from the dead, and now he still speaks and says, Come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Herod thought Jesus was a threat to him, and he is in a sense. Jesus is a threat to all other kingdoms. He's a threat to all other rulers. He's a threat to all other false gods. He's a threat to all other idols. He's a, he's a threat to all of our sins. I love the a line in a bunch of old Western movies. You, you've heard this line a thousand times. This town ain't big enough for the both of us. Or this town ain't big enough for the two of us. Depends on which Western you're watching. Herod knows. This baby... Born in Bethlehem, Jesus, if he's the Messiah, I'm in trouble. If he's the one, if he's God in flesh, if he's the Savior of the world, I'm in trouble. So his options are, I can either worship him or I can go to war with him. Satan's options were the same. Either worship him or go to war with him. And your options are the same. You are either worshiping him or you are at war with him. And at Christmas, Jesus says, I've come to the negotiation table. 
And I'm asking you to just bring your sin. And I'm bringing myself. I'm bringing my life, my righteousness, my death, my resurrection. You bring your sin. It's Isaiah 1. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are red like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Jesus looks over the horizon of every faith, of every religion, of all other so-called gods, all of our sins, all of our idols, and he says, look, I've stepped into this earth, and this universe isn't big enough for the both of us. It's either me, the way, the truth, and the life, or no one gets to the Father but by me. Jesus existed outside of human history. This is what makes him so unique as well. You and I, we all emerge into history. We're just kind of born into it. We have no previous history. Jesus has previous eternal history. He didn't emerge from history. He consciously came into it to save us. And now that he is in our history, this is why the old song sings, prepare him room. Let every heart prepare him room. Why? Look at what he brings. Jesus is not a threat to his people, those who come to him with open hands of faith. What does he bring? Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glories of the only son from the father with what? Full, full of grace and truth. What billows out of Jesus? What is in the mega personality of Jesus? Grace and truth. And he's full of it. I love that word full. Grace and truth. Because you know what? Jesus is the best friend for sinners like us. Do you know why Jesus is a great friend for sinners? Because sinners like us need a lot of grace, and Jesus is full of it. Sinners like us who believe all kinds of terrible things, I've sinned too big. I've sinned too much. God wouldn't want me. I'm such a wreck in my life. I'm such a disappointment. He would want nothing to do with me. Jesus is a great friend for sinners like us because not only does he have the truth, he is the truth. Christmas shows you the truth. He came to us and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Like Herod, Jesus is only a threat if you don't want what he brings. If you want to keep your sin, he's opposed. But if you'll come to him, he gives you grace and truth. If you see him as glorious and be open to him, say, oh, Lord, I, I want your grace. Will you give it? He will always say, yes. I, I need your grace and truth. Will, will you give it? Yes. At Christmas, and guys, at every moment, beyond Christmas, we must see his glory. This is really what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is more, oh gosh, I wish our culture would see this. It is so much more than agreeing to some system of morality. That is not Christianity. To be a Christian is more than, well, I live in Texas, you know, it'd be, and I'm white. It'd be weird for me to be a Muslim uh, I'm white, that'd be weird for me to, you know, to go join some kind of Buddhist thing. I should go to a Christian church. That is not Christianity. And to death with cultural Christianity, I hope it is exploded from our culture and put in the ground never to come back again. Real Christianity. 
Christianity is to say, I have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. I see him as more than a teacher. I see him more than somebody who said some good morality lessons for my life. I see him as the one who died in my place for my sins and who rose again from the dead and is coming back to give me eternal life on the new earth. That and that alone is Christianity. And that's why he came at Christmas. He came to smuggle in the gospel nuke behind enemy lines and to detonate it inside the bowels of death, establishing a new world order for needy sinners like us. Christmas is more than cutesiness. It's a war story. That chubby little baby Jesus, he came as the greatest threat to Herod, to Satan, to our sin, and to death itself. I mean, that baby Jesus, of course, he was a baby. He got these little chubby baby hands. Under those chubby baby hands are brass knuckles. And he came to wage war on sin, Satan, and death. And what does every warrior do after he wins? He has spoils. I love reading about what soldiers did in World War II after, they, after Nazi Germany was conquered. They would bring back these rare German guns and rare pictures and you know, things they swiped from Hitler's castle. Or soldiers in Iraq when they tore down Saddam Hussein, taking pictures on his golden throne and his golden toilet and all kinds of weird stuff they would take from Saddam's palace. Gifts for kids. This is the second thing about Christmas. The king has a gift, and we must receive his grace upon grace. Look at verse 16. For from his fullness, so verse 14, he's full of grace and truth. Verse 16, now, from his fullness, we have all received. Two things we got to do at Christmas. See his glory and receive what? Receive his grace upon grace. You may not remember from what we read earlier, but look at verse 11. The word receive is mentioned earlier in verse 11. He came to his own, the, the Jewish people, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him. Okay, what does it mean to receive him? What does it mean for, for every heart to prepare him room? What does it mean to receive the word made flesh? But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. To believe in him. To believe that he is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. To believe that he is the I am. To believe that Abraham rejoiced to see his day, that Abraham rejoiced to worship him. To believe that he is the door, that he is the good shepherd, that he is the vine, that he is our great God and Savior. And what do we receive when we believe? Grace upon grace. He gives mega grace to his people. Not from the dregs of who he is, not from an exhausted Savior, not from a depleted Jesus. No, from his fullness. Every single one of us, when we go to Jesus, we all receive the same amount of Jesus, cranked up to 11 from his fullness, grace upon grace upon grace, from the very essence to the, the max, the full capacity Christ. He gives us not one grace, not two, not three, not a thousand grace, but grace upon grace for the rest of your life and into eternity. Undeserved love upon undeserved love. This is the Christian life. You've never deserved God's love. And you never will. 
only by Christ are now we worthy to receive the great love of God. Unearned mercy. We've never earned his mercy. Or else it wouldn't be mercy. We get undeserved love upon undeserved love. We get unearned mercy upon unearned mercy. We get unrelenting grace upon unrelenting grace. And uh, look, uh, we, we just struggle to believe this because our kindness has limits. We all get sick and tired of being kind. We get fed up with being nice to people, especially people who are cranky. We get fed up with be, because we're human. We have limits. We have capacity. We, we just get tired. We, we, our patience runs out. But with Jesus and his people, his kindness has no limits. He's infinite. He's eternal. It's grace in place of grace. The, the way this, these words are constructed reminds me of when I'm playing Hot Wheels with my son, and he's two years old, and we're playing at the table, and he's playing, and, oh, no, one of the cars flies off the table. Oh, no. And I go, here you go. Another car. He goes, cheat you. And then he starts playing again. And, oh, oh, no. I go, here you go. Here's another car. Car upon car. Car in place of car. I don't have an infinite stash. I'm just picking up some of the other ones on the floor and going, here you go. Car upon car. Grace upon grace. And, you know, Red Robin supposedly has unlimited french fries. <laughs> now, I've only been once. And when they brought the burger and the fries, I'm not kidding, I could immediately count how many fries were in my basket. You should never be able to quickly count how many fries are in your basket well, in one glance. <laughs> and you ask for more, hey, I finished the four you gave me, can I, can I have some more? Uh, uh, okay. And like she had like a, a little attitude. Like, I, what? It's part of the deal. They were stingy. I mean, we got more, but it took forever, and it was a hassle. And every restaurant's kind of like this eventually. Tex-Mex places are like this. After about the 10th, hey, can we have more chips? It gets a little old. Can we have more bread? And then you pay, and it's like the free stuff's gone. You pay it already? Nope, no more chips. No more water. You get no more ice. Nothing. You're dead to me now. <laughs> the servers get tired of doing it. Why? I mean, they're busy. They're busy. they got other tables. They're not omniscient. They're not omnipresent. They're not omnipotent. they got to keep their profits up, too. It's costly. But with Jesus, he doesn't get tired of giving us grace upon grace. We struggle to believe this because this is the only place in the universe where there really is never-ending grace. There really is bottomless grace. He's not stingy with his grace. It's not a hassle for him. He gives grace upon grace, not in theory, not as some kind of hook, selling point, but in reality. And the tone of the phrase, grace upon grace, is meant, it's kind of a rapid fire moment. It makes me think of, you know, in those war movies, you got a guy up on a big gun, it's just, go, 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 he's just shooting, rapid fire. This is grace upon grace. Just rapid fire grace coming at us again and again and again. It's too much for you to outrun it. It's too much grace for you to even outsin it. It's too much grace for you to run over it. To be a Christian is to experience grace upon grace from Jesus, from his fullness, now and into eternity. Ten billion years from this moment when you are enjoying the new earth, you will be enjoying the new earth, swimming in it from the fullness of Christ, grace upon grace. That's our entire existence now. Jesus is so mighty 
that his grace is beyond the powers of comprehension. I mean, his grace is so atomic, is it enough to sustain me for 10 billion years from his fullness, undepleted, grace upon grace. And then let's add Lawson to the mix. Lawson and I, maybe that's going to bring Jesus, you know, oh man, my fullness is kind of getting a little weak here. No. We all, from his fullness, we all receive. You add up the whole church, you add up every Christian from Adam to the very last one that says, Jesus, save me. You bring all of us together, and John says, we all receive from his fullness, grace upon grace. We all get the same amount of Jesus. Undepleted. Undepletable. At Christmas, we come to his manger, his cross, his empty tomb, and his throne. And what is his throne called? Is it a throne of disappointment? Is it a throne of finger wagging? Is it a throne of shame? No, it's a throne of grace. We come to him as needy and weak sinners and say, Lord, can I have grace? And he says, I have grace upon grace for you. So at Christmas and now and always, stop acting like you aren't needy. Stop faking it till you make it because guess what? You'll never make it which is why we got to be risen from the dead from our sins with Christ. Start going to him and receive as a needy, broken, weary sinner that you are, that we all are, receive from his fullness grace upon grace, where his mercies are new every morning. Every Christian here today, what we need most oftentimes we come to church and what we think we need most is I need like this new nugget of truth that I'm going to do nothing with. That's not what we need most. What we need most is to receive from his fullness grace upon grace. To believe that there are new mercies every morning. To believe and enjoy and rest right now in the grace of Christ. Oh, but my sins are so many. Friend, what do you think grace is for? Not for our goodness, for we have none. But his grace meets us in our sins and leads us into everlasting life. And do you see him as glorious? Will you look to him? Maybe you're not a Christian today. And maybe this, this presentation of Jesus is a little different than what you thought or what you expected or anticipated. Will you look to him as glorious? See him as more than a teacher, more than a healer, but as the very son of God. Will you just say to him, I believe that you died for my sins. Will you give me grace upon grace? The answer will always be yes. It's yours for the taking. So church, see his glory. Receive again from his fullness, grace upon grace. And let every heart prepare him room. For from his fullness, there is grace upon grace for sinners like us. Let's pray together.